Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Now, I just want to say this from the jump. I'm going to attempt to ostracize 80% of you. Uh, As a millennial, I grew up in what was probably objectively the best generation, right? Um, (laughs) Easy, Gen Z. Easy, Gen Z. Uh, We had Rocket Power, Halo 3, uh, LimeWire, and Napster. You guys, yeah. And a whole host of things that I don't have time to list this morning. But I can admit that we had major flaws. And I think one of those major flaws was our primary goal in life seemed to be to butcher the English language, right? Words like adulting, uh, a whole generation afraid of the word moist. Uh, Yeah, you can tell like when people were forming their identity based on how they feel about the word moist. Uh, And then acronyms like FOMO, that just like alter brain chemistry, right? One of those acronyms, or acronyms that I'm afraid that we are most known for is the acronym YOLO. Now, YOLO, as most of you know, stands for the phrase, you only live once. And while it was formulated before this, it really took off with the, um, in popularity in 2011 with the release of Drake's hit, The Motto, Right? He featured Lil Wayne in this. And part of the chorus, obviously I can't sing the whole song for different reasons, but part of the chorus is this. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to say it, okay? Now she won a photo. You already know, though. You only live once. That's the motto, baby. YOLO. (laughs) In the edit, in the radio edit, just to be clear, it's baby. Um, Now, essentially what this phrase encapsulates was that because we only live once, we should live however we want, right? Throw caution to the wind and live life to the fullest. However, others had different interpretations of this phrase. One of my other favorite interpretations is by Lonely Island. Uh, Lonely Island is Andy Samberg's parody band. You really did not think you were coming to church this morning to hear (laughs) me talk about Drake and Lonely Island in the same sentence, right? So, uh... They're, they're best known for I'm on a boat, right? But in their song titled YOLO, they feature Adam Levine, and they sing, once again, I will not be singing, but they say, YOLO, you only live once, the battle cry of a generation. This life is a precious gift, so don't get too crazy. It's not worth the risk. You know that we are still young, so don't be dumb. Don't trust anyone, because you only live once. Now, you get, you get the sense throughout the whole song, but in other words, we only live once, so live really safely, right? Do not risk anything ruining it. It's the exact opposite sentiment of what we initially meant when we said YOLO, right? I think regardless of your interpretation and your application of the phrase YOLO, my generation's obsession with this idea made one thing very clear. We are constantly looking for ways to cope with the reality of death, right? The guaranteed, inescapable reality of our lives one day ending is terrifying. And so as a result, we go from the fountain of youth all the way to the billionaire Brian Johnson spending over $2 million a year 
on anti-aging treatments, humans have attempted to avoid this reality in every generation. But we, as followers of Jesus, need not avoid this reality. While our faith does not make death easy to deal with, it does allow us to understand the reality of our broken world in a way that does change our approach and our understanding of death. So we are going to continue this morning in 2 Corinthians 4, a chapter that lays out why Paul, despite his hardships, does not lose heart. The reality of death and the reality of a world full of death can can be a contributing factor to that losing heart, right? In fact, I would call it the main contributing factor. So we're going to explore what does this look like for us this morning. But first, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you for just the opportunity to get to dive into the Word, uh, to celebrate you with one another, to celebrate our friends uh, with one another as well, Lord. I just pray this morning that whatever comes from me is forgotten, but whatever comes from you is held on to, Lord. Pray that I'm about your glory, not mine, your fame, not mine, your name, not mine. Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Now, if you haven't been with us, this is actually our final uh, Sunday in our series that we have been calling A Church for Uptown. In this series, we've, ex- we've been exploring what kind of church we are and what kind of church we are becoming as we launch the new year. To end the series, we began last week in 2 Corinthians 4, we, and we explored the first half to parse out what does it look like to be a church for Uptown when it gets hard, right? So the first couple of Sundays, we talked about, like, what kind of church are we? And now we're talking about what, how do we continue to do that as it gets hard, though? What do we turn to when we lose heart, right? This week, as we have already read, we're going to be looking at the second half of 2 Corinthians to continue that theme. What does Paul continue to say about not losing heart. But before I do that, I do want to remind you of what we talked about briefly if you weren't here last week um, or if you forgot. Paul began to lay out the argument for why he does not lose heart. And he was really laying out this argument because his friends at the, at, uh, the church in Corinth were beginning to question his credibility as a minister of the gospel. And so what were the two reasons why he did not lose heart? First one was he is not responsible for how people respond to the gospel or to the way of Jesus. He was only the messenger, right? And then the second reason, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and guides us and empowers us to do the work, right? The Holy Spirit was the reason he did not lose heart. Both of these things pointed to the fact that God is in control and we are merely joining him in the renewal of all things, right? When things don't go exactly how we want them to, or when people don't respond to the life of Jesus in the way we hope, if we preach Christ faithfully, we can rest in the freedom that God is the one at work. We do not lose heart. But Paul's argument for not losing heart does not end there. So I do want to jump back into 2 Corinthians 4 and uh, that Tayun read for us and begin to explore more of what he lays out. So, Verse 7, which we ended with last week, and we began with this week again, it says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Like I talked about this verse last week, but I wanted to remind us of the context that we're in. Paul is saying, so the argument, if you weren't here, uh, people were questioning Paul's credibility because he was poor, he suffered way more than they thought he should be, 
and he was a bit boring at times, right? But Paul is saying that, yeah, I might be poor, I might be suffering, I might be a bit boring, but the reality is that this is all to reveal God's power, not Paul's. God's glory, not Paul's, right? So that's why he says we have this treasure, we have the ministry, we have the gospel in jars of clay, him, right? And that's where we get uh, into verse 8, hard-pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. Paul is beginning to lay out the nature of the suffering that he experiences, right? What is he saying here? He's saying that his suffering is incredibly real, right? He's hard-pressed, he's perplexed, he's persecuted, he's struck down. But even if it's very real, his suffering is not ultimate. I want you to think about, though, like contextualize what he's saying to what Paul actually suffered. So I have a couple of verses here where he lays out later in 2 Corinthians some of the things he suffered in his ministry journeys. Starting in uh, chapter 11, verse 23. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. That's wild. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. But don't worry, it doesn't end there. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. That's everywhere, just to be clear. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily pressure concerning, sorry, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. This is an unreal list, right? Like, not only did he get shipwrecked once, it wasn't even twice, it was three times, right? Uh, And clearly, this list was made when Paul was not yet at the end of his life. And yet, Paul is saying that this is hard-pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. This is bad, but his suffering was not ultimate. What does Paul's understanding of his suffering show us? You see, the contrasts of verses 8 and 9 in chapter 4 underscore that it is endurance in the midst of adversity— not miraculous deliverance from it that reveals most profoundly the power of God, right? In other words, it was Paul's endurance amidst all of this, not God making sure that he didn't go through anything hard, that shows God's power. I believe that Paul's suffering and endurance is a sign of God's victory that already is, but not yet. You see, the enemy came, what did, what did he come to do? Seek, kill, destroy. And yet, Paul has not been destroyed. Even though his suffering persists, the fact that Paul does too points to God's power at work in his life, right? 
this isn't like enough. It's not like, ah, he's going through hard and he does well. Like, that must be God, right? What does Paul, or what gives Paul the power to say this? What does he know about the nature of his suffering that gives him endurance? Let's look at verses 10 and 12, or 10 through 12. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Okay, stop there. So first off, the word death here is, that, is more aptly um, translated as dying. So what he says is we always carry around in our body the dying of Jesus. So Paul is relating his experience of suffering to the dying of Jesus, to Jesus' walk from in front of Pilate to the cross. What does this tell us about what Paul means when he talks about death and dying, particularly in this passage? It means a death is not just our physical end of life, but it also encapsulates in the ways in which we suffer for the sake of Christ. Uh, or, or in other words, like how do we experience the, our broken world? So when we talk about the dying of Jesus versus the death of Jesus, we are talking about a reality that lasts longer than a one-time event, right? Sometimes in our faith, we are all for the death of our old selves, right? My old self is dead. My new self is alive. And that's because it feels like very quick and very sudden. It's like a new thing, right? But then if we're like called into the dying of Jesus, something that lasts longer than a moment, that's when we get to begin to get uncomfortable, right? Well, I don't, I don't want to go through all that. This is a reality that Paul carried around with him every single day of his ministry, right? Now, where do we come in in this, right? Because I, I can, I think, pretty confidently say that none of us has been shipwrecked. And if I'm somehow wrong, I don't think you've been shipwrecked three times. I can also fairly confidently say that at least most of us, if not all, will not be flogged and beaten for our faiths, right? And I... Uh, and, and so I can say this, but given our current context, even if you think it's getting hard for Christians, the reality is, is that we have had it pretty easy when it comes to being witnesses for Christ, right? Part of that is just the reality that Christianity in America has often been co-opted by empire, and so it looks a little different, but that's a different sermon. And so I want us to think about, like, what does this actually look like for us then, right? One way we can think about this is the ways in which we die to self. This, simply put, looks like sacrificing our time, energy, resources, in order to make sure people see and hear Jesus from us, right? This can look like a lot of things. Like, what does it look like for me to sacrifice my time, my energy, my resources, to put Jesus at the forefront of my life for others? Um, I want to give you two examples on the spectrum. One uh, is by fighting against sort of the NIMBY mentality, the not-in-my-backyard mentality, in our current cultural context of real estate prices, when opportunities to house people or welcome people occur in our neighborhoods, right? Especially in ways that might affect the value of the land you own. Dying to self means opening up opportunities for others, even when it costs us. On the other end of the spectrum, though, another way this can play out risking relationships with non-Christian friends to bring up Jesus and, and invite them into relationship with him, right? Uh, I want to give you an example. My senior year at Northwestern, um, I made it the goal to, my sh to share Jesus with every person in my fraternity, every person in my fraternity. Yes, I was in a fraternity, 
No, I don't talk about it a lot because of the connotation of fraternities. But you can know, uh, and we have some friends here who can tell you, fraternity, everyone at Northwestern's a little different. Um, so fraternity sometimes just meant like, instead of playing video games alone, I was playing video games with friends, right? Um, wasn't the only place to make friends, but I decided it was a place I would. Uh, okay, so I did end up going through and sharing the gospel with 120 guys in my fraternity by the end of the year. And there were some really, really awkward moments. I had a great relationship with everyone, so I didn't like risk relationship with people, but it was uncomfortable at times and did cost me a bit of my reputation. But I desired to live out what John the Baptist proclaimed in John chapter 3. I must decrease so that he may increase. And honestly, like we are not promised to see the fruit, but praise God we did. We, I did see a guy come to know Jesus in my fraternity. Uh, he's still following him today. He was discipled by other guys uh, that were in my fraternity after I left. And it was a really, really sweet thing. Uh, I still like praise God for Alex all the time. Now, this is supremely different than what Paul went through, right? It's like, okay, maybe one guy doesn't talk to me anymore. Big deal, right? That's not being shipwrecked. But that's okay. That's okay that it looks different for us, right? I think that sometimes we get caught up in this, and there are, I don't need to name people, but there are certain pastors in the white American church that whip up like this faux persecution for being Christian, right? It's sort of this whole like, they're going to start imprisoning us for reading the Bible. And we are far from that reality, right? I think this is done to instigate fear uh, in a way that seeks more power, political or otherwise, and that's not something that we have to fall into, right? We are, not we are not called to take more control out of fear of what they will take from us, right? We are only called to carry around the treasure in jars of clay. And so we can be real that our persecution or our sufferings look a little bit different, right? With that being said, according to Paul in his life, what has this carrying of the dying of Jesus, though, led to? We always carry around in our body the dying of Jesus. So let's go back to the passage. We always carry around in our body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are called, or sorry, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So a short way to think of this. The life of Jesus only makes sense when it's coupled with the death of Jesus. So we carry both. They only exist with each other. And then Paul in verse 12 tells us part of his motivation for carrying the dying of Jesus. So he just talked about like we do carry the death and the life of Jesus. Verse 12 tells us why. He says, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. In other words, the suffering that Paul has gone through, just like the, or the death of Jesus, has led to life. Sometimes when we think about going through hard times, we're like, that was hard, but in spite of it, God has done all these things. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that in spite of his suffering, good things have happened. He's saying that as a result of his suffering, good things have happened. And I think there's a difference. Death is at work in him, but life in them. Because he died to self, he was able to show people the life of Christ. Why is, that the, why is this the case, though? Why has God made it this way? 
It's because Paul's life looked like the cross. And the paradox of the cross turns upside down the ideas of glory and success. Think about it. Jesus's glorious exaltation was on the cross, right? He was glorified through the cross. It was by his dying he was made glorious and invited others into eternal life. Death was at work in him, and as a result, life in us. And we are invited to imitate our lives after the cross. A love, what what do we see in the cross? Think about it. A love that is self-giving, that allows what the enemy believes to be his secret weapon, namely death, to be that which is an instrument for life to die to ourselves by laying our lives down for the sake of others. That's what it looks like to imitate our lives after the cross. And yet, even though we are called into this dying to self, allowing ourselves to align our lives to the cross of Christ, we know that this is not the end of the story. And we actually have more motivation than just others experiencing life. Let's look at verse 14. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Do you, know what, do you understand what that's saying? Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us. We can embrace death and dying to self because our God is not a God who stayed in the grave. And because he did not stay in the grave, Even as we are called into aligning our lives with his death, we were not left to dwell in that death. Yes, death is necessary to experience aligning our lives to Christ, but that does not mean that death has the final say. If the cross of Christ, with me right now, if the cross of Christ explains why Paul suffers, it is the resurrection of Christ that gives him the confident hope needed to persevere what he suffers, right? We can die to self. We can count others more significant than ourselves. We don't have to worry about the bottom line of our property value. We can love our spouses and children, put their priorities above our own. We can do all this because the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with him and present us to himself. This is what it looks like to carry both the dying of Jesus and the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies. It looks like reminding people of their dignity. It looks like, what Tiana talked about, being present and more loving in Uptown. It looks like reminding people that they no longer have to live in shame, but can live boldly for Jesus. And it looks like, no matter the personal cost to us, We can do this because we know there's a day that is coming when we will be delivered from death and presented to God himself as his inheritance. We are safe in Jesus' death. We are safe in our own death. Now, I do want to provide a caveat here because I think if left unsaid, some may logically take this to a place it was not intended to. So, Let me say this. The reality of Paul's suffering and of our dying to self does not mean all suffering and pain is good and is ignored, whether it is experienced by us or by others. Two examples, you probably know where I'm going, but two examples I mean here, 
One is in a scenario in which someone is in an abusive relationship, and they convince themselves or someone else convinces them that it's better for the person they are with uh, that you endure the abuse. That is not what I'm saying, right? You have permission to be in safe relationships with those near you, right? So I am not calling you to suffer in silence. I'm not calling you to stay in abusive relationships because you believe you ought to. Don't hear me say that. If you are in an abusive relationship, if you see an abusive relationship, I want you to talk to someone safe. You can talk with me, Tiana, any of the leadership, or anyone you feel safe. I just wanted to say that. Another way this is used is when people use the argument of life after death or of this not being our eternal home to say that injustice does not matter because eternity is coming, right? The argument is that social justice is not worth our time and that we should focus on eternal things like people's souls. This is also flat out wrong, right? And flies in the face of the ways in which Jesus spent his time in his ministry. This is only a logical conclusion from this idea because of a disembodied theology that says the soul and the body are different and not of value to God. And that is not true. It's not true. Part of dying to self actually looks like stepping into justice work, not avoiding it, right? So with that being said, I want to finish up our passage this morning. So what do we know? We know Paul knows two things. Death is at work in him, but uh, life in the Corinthians, but that he will also be raised with Christ and presented to God. And as a result of knowing these things, what does Paul reiterate? Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though we are outwardly wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, I think we talk so often about these biblical words uh, like glory without really considering the full depth of their meaning. So let's just take a second here. I lost my spot. Here we are. The word for glory in Hebrews, or in Hebrew, not in the book of Hebrews, in the language of Hebrew, is the word kabod, which has, at the root of it, a meaning of weighty or heaviness. So Paul considers his sufferings, what he calls his momentary troubles, but then he considers them in light of the reality of God's splendor and glory and love in the resurrection. And in this consideration, these troubles, his sufferings that we just talked about, they become incredibly light, right? It's like, it's like weight training. If you just stick with five pounds, like 10 pounds is going to feel heavy, right? But if you do 20 pounds, 10 pounds is going to feel light. And so when he considers the weight of God's glory, his current afflictions, his current sufferings feel light in comparison, And the eternal glory that we will be introduced to after our death will far outweigh anything we suffered here. God's glory is so weighty that our burdens lose all their power, right? It is by understanding what we get to experience in our death, namely God's glory, that we can move our eyes from our afflictions, our sufferings, our dying, to God, to his love 
to our life as a result of his love. The afflictions Paul experienced, which once felt like a lethal weight around his neck, seem weightless in comparison to his eternal weight of glory. Now, I just want to share with you, one of my fatal flaws uh, is that I am burdened when people are experiencing discomfort. And I know, like, originally that sounds like a Michael Scott burden. Like, oh, I, too nice. I sing in the shower. Sometimes I hit people with my car. But, the re- <laughs> but I, let me tell you why this is a fatal flaw. In my past relationships, I have prioritized making sure someone is comfortable over calling them to something higher and, and that is less comfortable, right? However, as I have dwelled on 2 Corinthians 4 in my life, and as, I've, I, as I have dwelled on it this week in preparation for this morning, I knew that I had to set aside that desire for y'all to be comfortable in order to call you into a costly sacrifice. Knowing that in choosing to die to ourselves, we are carrying with us both the death and also the life of Jesus, right? That the uh, death may be at work in us, but life is at work in Uptown. So with that, I want to reorient our minds um, by reading part of the opening words of the second letter to the Corinthians, where Paul talks about, like, what is real comfort, right? So let me read uh, for you, starting in verse 3. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, you see, he doesn't ignore or avoid the sufferings, just as we share in them, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If, it is, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patience patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Monsieur Day, I want us to consider this week the ways in which we are called to die to self. How are we to align ourselves to Christ's death so that life may be at work in Uptown? But how do we know that as we share in his death, we also share in his life? That in both Jesus' death and in our own, we are safe. Because the God who raised Jesus from the dead will one day raise us up and present us to himself. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.